This is an IMA podcast. The Institute of Modern Art is a contemporary art space in Brisbane, Australia. Since 1975, we have been presenting cutting-edge visual arts through our annual program of exhibitions, public programs, publications, and off-site initiatives by local, national, and international artists. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where the IMA now stands, the land of the Yuggera and Turrbal people. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I would like to introduce Sebastian Goldsbink. Um, Sebastian is the guest judge for the 2022 Church Emerging Art Prize. Um, And Sebastian is a Sydney-based curator. Um, In 2011, he created the artist-run space Alaska Projects as a platform for exhibiting contemporary art in unused and disused spaces. Since its inception, Alaska has showcased over 500 artists across 150 exhibitions. A proud descendant of the Burramadigal people of Western Sydney, Goldsbink has curated exhibitions nationally throughout Australia and internationally in London, LA, New Orleans and Christchurch. In 2022, he curated the Adelaide Biennale of Australian Art for the Art Gallery of South Australia titled Free State. Um, the Biennale brought together a multi-generational group of 25 Australian artists um, and is Sebastian's talk today um, is about that project. So I would like to welcome Sebastian to the stage. Thanks so much. It is great to be here. Um, all right, I'm going to kick off with this. So the taxi pulls out of Sydney's Sir Charles Kingsford Smith Airport in the minutes before the onset of a midnight curfew. I've just flown back from Paris after visiting my uncle who will soon pass away. We spend a final night in his apartment together drinking whiskey and listening to the furious sounds of bebop legends Thelonious Monk and Charlie Parker, tempered by the rhythmic cool of Elmore James. He tells me that this will be the last time that we see each other. The definition of an expatriate, my uncle had escaped Australia 50 years earlier for a life in Paris. He married, was a teacher, and lived in existence as far from his upbringing in Australian suburbia as he could. I asked him if he regretted leaving his home, and he said no. Charlie Parker's sweet saxophone wails through the Parisian night. My uncle, old, frail, and hard of hearing, claps and smiles at the sound of Parker's solo, a passage of music that at times feels like a ship about to crash into the rocks. He tells me about 1968, the barricades, the students. John Lee Hooker sings about the Motor City burning, and my uncle drinks and rocks back and forth, back and forth. The presence of my late auntie Evelyn is everywhere, her hairbrush still by the basin in the bathroom. He tells me that he doesn't fear death. He doesn't fear going blind. What he fears is losing the last of his hearing. These songs, these memories sustain him. He left an Australia that he felt restricted him. I assured him that it has changed and he asked whether I'm really sure. The taxi driver, puzzled, asks here. I, I say yes. We are along a stretch of seawall in Rose Bay. I exit the cab and look at Sydney Harbour before me. I undress and I dive in. The sensation of my body piercing the surface of the black water to be enveloped by bubbles returns my soul, which have been lost in transit. I know we are made of atoms and each of these particles has a minute space between them. The water serves to join these dots momentarily. This is what interests me. 
the slash between words, the slash between states, the dream and promise of a free state. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, that, that was the start of my uh, essay for uh, the Adelaide Biennial for, for, for this publication, uh, Free State. Um, and today we are going to talk about um, this exhibition, um, how it sort of came about. Um, but really it's a story and it's a story that I have in plan so I don't have any notes and things like that so it could be long and kind of rambling. I'm going to rely on Gnome to like wind me up or, or, or you guys if you go like this I'll know, I know, I'll know it's time. Um, yeah so I'm, I'm going to sort of start at the start and talk through uh, a bunch of stuff, sort of the stuff that was covered in, in that bio so that sort of journey through Alaska projects to the biennial. Um, which uh, closed, I guess, about six, six, seven weeks ago uh, down in Tandanya in Adelaide. And uh, for me, it's, it, it's all one kind of project. Like, it's, it's been this kind of period in time. And it, it also weirdly feels like, um, like the end of a chapter. So we're sort of talking about, like, this, this kind of chapter uh, in its entirety. Um, um, I, too, would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and waters which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, always here, always will be. I'm really honoured that I got to fly here from uh, Gadigal land uh, in Sydney and I'd also like to pay my respects um, to the Ghana people uh, in Tanzania where this uh, uh, exhibition, uh, Free State, was uh, staged. So um, I'll just quickly also to run through the artists for the, for the Adelaide Biennial and then I'll go back to the start and then we'll catch up. So um, uh, the artists, there were 25 artists. So um, Abdul Rahman Abdullah, uh, Serena Bodson from Man and Greta, Mitch Cairns, Dean Cross, Sean Gladwell, Dennis Golding, Lauren Cronemeyer, Leith McGregor, Kate Mitchell, Tracy Moffat, Stanislav Pinchuk, Tom Polo, J.D. Reformer, Rico Rennie, Julie Rapp, Kate Scarterfeld, Darren Sylvester, Yelena Talecki, Rhoda Jide, James Tyler and Rebecca Selick, Angela and Hussein Valamanesh, Sarah Waters and Ming Wong. Okay, so um, where's a good place to start? Well, I'll, I'll start at the start. So I, uh, I used to be an actor. I was an actor for many, many years and... Um, um, I started to sort of get like less and less kind of main roles in, in shows and more like kind of ads. And I was doing like maybe 10, 12 ads a year, which was great. Like you're sort of lucrative, you make lots of money from ads, but I had just a crazy amount of time on my hands. So effectively I was sort of working like 50 days of the year. And then the rest of the time I was just doing nothing. And it, it, in retrospect, I'm like, why did I ever have a problem with that? Like, that would be amazing, like, take, take me back. But at the time, I just felt like life was just, like, slipping by me. It, it, it's a weird kind of thing, like, when you don't have, you know, something to kind of focus on. And um, as an actor, I'd gone through acting school and I'd worked in, like, cooperative theatre and stuff, and I loved that thing. I loved, like... The, the idea of theatre, like, working together and everyone sort of does everything and sort of builds this kind of show and people come to it and it works out or it doesn't. That was the kind of thing that intoxicated me about it. L not so much 
the acting on the stage, but the sort of the production of the thing. And so I, I came to this existential crisis of like, what you know, what am I doing with my life? And I was kind of young enough where I thought, okay, I, I can make a switch, you know, what what would I do? And the only other thing I wanted to do was um, was work in art. And uh, so I uh, volunteered for the Biennale of Sydney to, to be a, a volunteer. And um, I was there for like one day and um, volunteering and, you know, doing, doing the kind of thing. And I always talk about this when I talk to volunteers. I'm like, you know, I was also a volunteer, but in reality it was, it was one day. Um, and uh, so I did one day and this guy, Mark Brown, um, who was the uh, head of like video installation at the MCA, he was also working on the, the Biennale. He said, oh, like, do you want a gig doing the deinstall of the Biennale, like a paid kind of gig? And I was like, oh. Yeah, sure. And that was um, deinstalling the um, uh, Anthony Gormley work, Asian Feel, which some of you may have may, may remember. I guess this is like 2006 or something like that. Um, this incredible, it's 150,000 individual clay pieces and it took us two weeks to deinstall. So it was like my first job in, in art. And whilst I was on the deinstall team, um, a lot of the people who were working on it um, uh, were applying for this job at the Museum of Contemporary Art, which was to be a VSO, like to stand on the floor and, you know, tell people where the bathrooms are and ask people not to touch things and, and hopefully talk to people about the work. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to apply. I'm going to apply. And I applied and I got that uh, job. And um, a lot of the people that I work with were artists. Um, like nearly everybody I work with was artists. And most of them kind of hated going to work <laughs> like you know they were like hungover and it's, it's you know it's a crazy any of you have done it it's like a it's kind of a it seems like a not a taxing job but it's super taxing just standing in there for eight hours in in these kind of weird spaces with white walls and you know um but I loved it I was so excited you know because this was like newness to me I was doing something new and I spent my time really like talking to people i talk a lot so i was like constantly talking to people kind of even if they didn't want to talk to me i was like talking to them you know um talking to them about the artworks um and i, I really spent all my time watching how people navigated spaces and um and i also spent a lot of my time trying to talk to the, the curators like trying to work out how they put shows together and I didn't go to art school um, or, you know, cu curator school or anything like that. So I was really, like, working it out. It's kind of like um, setting up audio equipment without the instructions. Like, I didn't have the instructions, so I was just trying to piece it together to work out how it might fit together. So that's all I thought about uh, all day, and I loved it. I was, like, super not jaded at all. Like, everyone else was, like, kind of cool and kind of jaded, like, oh, work sucks, you know, and I'm like... I'm so excited to be here, <laughs> you know, like every single day. Um, and I would try and talk to the curators and a lot of times they were like too cool to talk to me. They, you know, would sort of ignore me. I was kind of annoying. Um, but Rachel Kent, who was the senior curator, like the big boss curator, she, for some reason she would always talk to me. And I guess she would sort of use me as a spy, sort of saying like, is this working? Are, are people actually going to that room? Do, do we need a sign there? You know, what are people saying about this work? What are, you know? And so we had this amazing kind of dialogue. And, and then very generously, she started bringing me into like pre-exhibition meetings as kind of like, uh, you know, um, someone to talk about like the reality of the show. 
And I was very much focused on this idea of the show, I guess coming from that theatre background, this idea of sort of working together and mounting a show, and this idea of having things that come to people rather than expect people to come to them. You know, and, and I think that exhibitions, when they work well, they do that. They, they, sort of, they sort of come to you, they kind of reach out to you. So this was always uh, in my head, in, in my thinking. And I would speak to you know, my colleagues who are all artists, and they were all really jaded um, because at that time in Sydney, um, the, you know, you'd finish kind of art school and you'd want to do a show at like an artist-run space. Um, and at that time, sadly, in Sydney, um, all of those spaces you had to pay for. Like you had to pay for a show and you had to sit the show and you had to like do, sort of do everything. Like the sort of the artist-run initiatives kind of that you know, the idea of that term artist-run initiative implies that it's pro-artist, right? But a lot of times they were sort of pro the initiative. They were just sort of sustaining themselves. But, but the last people that they were sort of thinking about was artists. Um, and this kind of frustrated me. And so I decided um, to open my own space. And the idea would be that I knew a bunch of artists who I worked with and, and you know, I would start with them and build from that. And so um, I uh, set about trying to find a space. And I didn't have any money, you know, I wanted to find a space for free. And my brother used to park uh, his car in the King's Cross car park. And in the bottom of the King's Cross car park, there was this old office um, that a mechanic had used uh, a decade before. And uh, it was carpeted and had a desk and like a phone and one of those roller deck things. And there was a leak in the ceiling and there was foliage growing up from the carpet, like a plant inside. It was like this weird kind of abject installation. Um, the building was owned by the City of Sydney. And at that time, the City of Sydney was doing a lot of like cultural kind of programming and innovative cultural stuff. And I was like, I'm going to call them. But I decided like I could either call like the creative people or I could call the car park people. And I thought I'm going to call the car park people because they're, they're more likely to say no. And so if it's going to be no, I'll get it over and done with quickly. Um, so um, the good thing about calling the car park people is no one calls them. No one's interested in them. So you just get straight through to, to the person, you know. And this guy, I sort of talked to him, he like cut me off really abruptly and he's like, 10 a.m. tomorrow, see you there. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know. And uh, so I'm there and I've got my whole pitch about kind of art and, you know, this thing and this inequity that artists have to pay for shows and this sort of utopian thing. And he sort of walks towards me in this like cheap suit and, I've, you know, I've got my hand out to shake his hand and he goes, don't fucking talk to me about art. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he goes, look, women don't like parking in this car park because it's dangerous. When you said art gallery, I thought women like art. If you can prove to me that women will park here because you put an art gallery in here, it's yours. <laughs> I, I'm like, okay. So I got all these women I know to write like letters saying, you know, if, if I... Um, you know, if there was an art gallery there, I'd feel... And this is an older King's Cross. You know, people, people don't realise that King's Cross is rapidly kind of gentrified, I guess like Fortitude Valley or whatever. But back then it was still raw and it was still scary. And, and, and people had legitimate concerns for parking that car park because it was a, a dangerous place. Big heroin problem and, you know, it was a, it was a bad place. And uh, so I sort of packaged this off and sent it off to the guy... And then just nothing, 
nothing. And it's like he's avoiding me. I'm calling, I'm emailing, just nothing. Like, and months go by, I'm looking at other spaces, but I kind of love this weird space. And I'd, and I'd sort of taken friends down who had set up art galleries and they're like, half of them were like, this is going to be amazing. And the other half were like, this is a disaster. Like no one will ever find you. No one will ever come. Don't do it. This is a big mistake. And then one day I get an email from him, no subject. And all it said, and it was in, in caps, you know, all it said in the email was keys at front desk. And it took me like another week of calling. I'm like, what, is that, what does that mean? Like, do we have to do a lease? Do we? And he goes, I get through to him and he goes, just don't fuck it up. I'm like, okay. So we start, right? So I've got the keys and I tell my friends, okay, we've got, we've got this art gallery. Let's, let's, let's do it. But I have no idea. Like, I have no idea how to run an art gallery. The only way I know how to run an art gallery is to run it like the MCA because that's the only art gallery I've ever worked at. So I just run it as if it's like a miniature version of the MCA. And all the artists are all people, you know, in the first show, all the artists are people who work at the MCA. Like, that's the artists I know. Fortunately for me, there's artists like Tom Polo and Sarah Contos and, you know, all these amazing kind of artists that are now, you know, crazy kind of famous, but then we're like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do a show. And so that's where, uh, that's where that started. And um, I kind of thought, like, um, it might only last a little while, like, because we kept pushing the boundaries because we had no parameters. So we're like, can we have a bar? I don't know. Like, let's just do a bar. And if there's a problem, they'll close it down. So we do a bar and we, we did like crazy. Like, you know, it was like Berlin. Like, you know, there'd be like 400 people there drinking cheap beer and smoking. Can people smoke inside? I don't know, it's a car park, there's like, I guess, right? Like, so we just, just kept on pushing it. And the crazy thing is they just never shut us down. They just let us go for 10 years. And they never really bothered us. So we just did more and more stuff and were more and more kind of uh, ambitious. Um, and that's, and that, that's what that was about. So yeah, that many kind of shows. And the interesting thing was that um, uh, a lot of artists who had no business showing there um, started to want to show there. And the reason was was because we had sort of no expectations. We also had no sort of financial imperative. Like if someone said, um, you know, my show is a Coke can sitting in the middle of the space and we thought that that was cool, we would just do that show. Um, and the interesting thing was that disrupting that thing of people having to pay for shows, it meant that anyone who had a show at Alaska only got it on merit or our perceived kind of merit of, of their work. So you, you couldn't pay your way in, you couldn't, you know, and sometimes like really big artists we'd say no to, like, you know, and we kind of crafted the program in this kind of anarchic kind of way. But that was my kind of foundation. Fast forward, um, I, I had this amazing phone call where uh, Lisa Slade, who was the um, uh, deputy director of the Art Gallery South Australia, says to me, um, I want you to write for the um, 2016 Adelaide Biennial Catalogue which is great, you know. And same kind of thing, like I'm a writer, I like I write stuff, but I'm not like, a, yeah, I didn't study writing, I didn't think, and I write this enormous essay for that. And there's that, and I just keep on doing what I'm doing, and we're doing, like, we expand our program to have, like, classical music performances and film screenings and dance things and, put, like, just whatever. We just kept on doing it. And I think at that time I had sort of a, a limitless energy. 
Like I just felt such momentum and I felt so inspired by the space. And it was that thing of the difference between acting and that was that in acting I was really relying on people to give me the opportunity to do stuff. But with this space, I had the opportunity to manifest things, to, to create things. And, and that's an addictive thing where someone comes to you with an idea and you go, I can physically manifest that. It's a really, really, really powerful thing. And so we just kept on uh, doing that. Fast forward more time, um, I'm driving and I get a phone call from Lisa Slade again. And Lisa's an amazing person, super laconic, you know, like... I'm driving, I'm near Bondi Junction. She's like, hey, Seb, how are things going? And I'm like, yeah, good. Lisa, how's, yeah, yeah, how's the weather in Sydney? Yeah, good, good. How's your family? You know, yeah, good, blah, blah. You know, and it seems like she's just sort of calling just to say hi. And I'm like, da-da-da-da-da. And she goes, yeah. Um, so you know that Adelaide um, Biennial's coming up? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking maybe she's going to say, can you write again for it or, you know, do a talk or whatever. And she's like, so you, you're good to do that? And, and I'm like, what? <laughs> and she's like, you... you you know, you, you're up for that? And I'm like, are you, are you fucking kidding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was, like, completely, like, one of those completely surprise kind of things. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I hang up the phone. I call my mom. And then I go home, and I'm just lying there, and I can't sleep. You know, I can't sleep. In my mind, it's, like, just, like, fountains of, of information and ideas are coming in. And the one thing, like the sort of flow of it is all these images, all these things, it's like intense kind of flow. But the one thing that keeps coming up is this word free state, free state, free state. And the, I guess the reason about that is the sort of um, the history of South Australia. And I'd always been kind of interested in it because South Australia is this kind of weird anomaly, you know. Um, people in Adelaide talk about it with pride, um, the fact that South Australia was a free state. It wasn't settled by, you know, it didn't have convicts. It was um, um, a place that was set up for free men, you know, uh, in inverted commas. Uh, so in 1836, they had this proclamation in South Australia um, of it as a, as, as a free colony. And it was a, a place that people could come from Europe uh, escape religious persecution and come to this sort of this kind of wonderland. And in that proclamation, uh, that sort of free state proclamation, uh, is this line that um, Aboriginal people are to be considered uh, British uh, subjects and they are to be afforded the same rights as everybody else. This is 1836. And if you compare 1836 to say, 1967, you know, or 2022, it's kind of insane. And of course, that doesn't uh, work out. But this place has this kind of um, underpinning of this kind of idealism that's not realized. And uh, normally for me, titles are really the last possible uh, thing I come up with. There's been heaps of times where I've like written an essay and I'm, or I'm a, usually late on the essay and I'm sitting there for like hours trying to think of like the perfect title to title something to send it off. Usually it's like a song lyric or you know something like that but in this case it's the first thing that comes to me and I'm like free state this, this is this is what it's about and it's this this kind of dual idea about um, transcending states as well and um, and um, uh, you know things like meditation or psychedelics or that kind of impulse to to go from the state that you're in to another state. So this is this kind of duality uh, in the thing. But we're also, this is also occurring sort of in concert with the pandemic, you know. And I say to myself, like, I really, really don't want to make um, a, a show about 
COVID. Like I don't want the subtitle of this show to be like free state, um, COVID is bad. You know, because we all know that COVID is bad, right? Um, what I'm interested in is the humanity in that. But then sort of history does this weird kind of thing where it starts to conspire. So I have this sort of initial idea. And then one weird thing that starts to happen is states, like states in comparison to the federal, start to become really important. Like sort of for the first time really since federation. Like we didn't, we didn't know who Mark McGowan, we didn't care who the Premier of Western Australia was. But all of a sudden we're watching news conferences where Western Australia seems like a profoundly different place to Victoria. Like because the response to COVID is, is state-based. And you're starting to get these tonal differences between states. Queensland's different to New South Wales. Tasmania's different to South Australia. You know, the Northern Territory, the ACT. It's this weird kind of thing about states that conspires. Um, so I'm sort of watching this fold out in real time and sort of my idea kind of changing, not because I'm changing it, but context is changing the thing. I said about, um, I, I know the kind of rough parameters for, for the, the show, like how many people can be in it. They had this thing where you can do like heaps of offsite projects. There's heaps of partners that are willing to partner with you. Um, and uh, historically that's what's happened. So the Adelaide Biennial has been running since 1990. Uh, so a long, a long time. And I think I sort of have a look at everything that's happening in the world and I go, no, like, I don't want to do anything off-site. I want it to be all in the museum. I want the intensity to be all in one kind of place. I don't want to take any chances. And there's a practical thing about that as well, which is I don't want, you know, one venue to say, oh, we're closing because of this stuff, but this what venues are. It's either all or nothing. And um, I said about thinking about the artists. And so it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity because there's artists that I've always wanted to work with and artists that I'd work with uh, a lot um, and artists that I've never worked with that I really want to work with. And I thought about this thing of uh, generations, like these sort of generations in Australian art, and I really wanted to have that present, like multiple generations. Um, and I remember having a, a fantastic... Um, I did a talk down in the Southern Highlands with Janet Lawrence, incredible, incredible artist. And um, I said to her, oh, like, let's meet up, you know, beforehand to talk. And she goes, no, 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 just pick me up and you drive me down and we'll talk on the drive. So we had this amazing drive and she was telling me about times back in the 80s where, you know, um, her and Julie Rapp and, you know, these, these amazing um, female artists back then, there was a group of um, male painters uh, in Sydney that had a monthly kind of meetup, like a, a painting meetup, where they would meet up to discuss issues in contemporary painting. And it was all men. And, you know, Julie Rapp and Janet and, you know, a few other women were like, oh, you know, could, could we come? And they had a meeting about this. And they got back to them and they said, look, um, it's inappropriate, um, but you're more than welcome to come to the pub afterwards for drinks. But, yeah, it's not appropriate. And this, this kind of floored me to think of these brilliant kind of minds, you know, that, that they were excluded. And I thought a lot about that kind of art history because um, people like Tracy Moffat or Julie Rapp or Janet Lawrence, it's kind of hard to imagine. But at that time, they were really on the periphery. Like they weren't the, the sort of, you know, now they feel like absolutely like the, the sort of foundations on which we built. But back then they were not. And those guys were. 
And the weird thing is now, no one gives a shit about those guys. <laughs> you know, like this, this kind of transition happened. And I remember talking to younger artists about people, uh, you know, you're talking to them about someone like Tracy Moffat. And they're like, man, I, I, studied, I studied her for my HSC. Like that was the first time I saw a video art. That's the first time I saw, a, you know, a woman of color or, or queerness or blah, blah, blah. And my whole practice, you know, came from that moment of scene. Like that's how foundational it is. The cool thing about those, those people is that they have no awareness of that. They really don't. Like, it's not them being kind of humble. They just don't get it because they're still in their thing of doing their kind of work. They don't sort of historicize themselves. But that's the reality of them. So, um, so yeah, uh, you know, Julie Rapp, uh, Tracy Moffat, um, and uh, Hussein and Angelo Valmanesh. That was my kind of, um, that was my kind of uh, you know, a senior kind of artist. And then I was really interested in a group of artists kind of uh, sort of after them that was sort of paralleled my kind of age, which were artists that, you know, had been established for a while and were now starting to do sort of like international projects and being in biennales and sort of, you know, transitioning to being like these kind of stars, you know. And same kind of thing, like, you know, I'd work with them in artist-run spaces and, you know, we'd, like, been up on dodgy ladders, hanging their stuff, and all of a sudden they're doing, like, solo shows at, you know, the NGA or, you know. Um, and I was really interested in that generation. And then there was a generation um, after them, even, that was far younger than, than me that were just emerging. And I was also interested in them. And I was interested in the dialogue between all of these artists and how that they, they might kind of coexist uh, together. And I really wanted to um, uh, make like a team, like almost like a football team. Um, and I used the, the French football team, their motto is um, our differences unite us. And you know, the French football team is very kind of emblematic of, of this new France, this multiracial France, this vibrant kind of diverse uh, place. And I like that idea of bringing together disparate and different kind of people together and what collectively um, that does. Um, and I was really excited, everyone, everyone uh, said yes and um, um, yeah, the only, I remember asking, uh, I'd sent really formally an email to Tracy Moffat through her gallery and I never run into Tracy but like the next night I ran into her at a function and she's like, oh Seb, I got the email, just give it to someone younger, I don't, you know, I don't need to do that and I was like, oh okay and she's like, what? And I was like, I'm, you know, whatever, like I was a bit cut, you know, and she's like, what did you, what did you even want to do? I said, it doesn't matter because you don't want to do it. And she's like, just tell me what it is you want to do. And, and I, I told her and she's like, you call my gallery tomorrow morning and say that I'm doing it. <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, my God. And um, I didn't talk to her uh, the whole way through the process. You know? Like in my mind, she's like a queen, right? Like I'm not bothering her. I'm not, you know. And I get this email out of the blue from her, which is like Tracy's tips for Seb curating a Biennale, like totally unsolicited, like just out of the blue, you know? And, and, and I, I, to me, it's like everything, you know, like I, I read it and I'm like I, like, I weep, it's so beautiful. And it's full of amazing bits of advice. Like if a wall needs to be green, that wall will be green. <laughs> Things like this. <laughs> and um, um, she's like, remember, um, press people are not your friend. 
remember they're not your friend. No matter how friendly they are, they're not your friend. You know, like these amazing kind of pearls of, of wisdom. So for me, you know, um, I think my whole thing is because I came to sort of art late and I didn't come through those kind of those normal kind of channels, I'm really a fan. Like essentially, I'm a fan, right? So this is like the ultimate kind of fanboy. It's like being able to create a basketball team, you know, I'm going to have Scotty Pippen and Charles Barkley and I'm going to have Clyde Drexler and I'm going to have... And they all go, yeah, okay, well, where's the ball? You know, that's what, that's what it kind of felt like. And I have this weird thing and I sort of talked about it um, um, in reference to the churchy. The one thing I really like about the churchy is that um, it's not just about that particular artwork. It's not like you're judging this artwork. It's, a, it's about wider kind of practice and the understanding that, you know, Artists are not defined by just one artwork. And I always say, like, I'm kind of more interested in artists than I am in artworks, which is weird for a curator because, you know, my stock and trade is working with artworks, and that's fine, but my interest is, is less in the object and more in the artist. It really is, and that's what really sustains me is that, is that kind of thing because um, I, I have this kind of fundamental belief in subjectivity, being subjective uh, and that's a weird thing you know like a, a a journalist right for instance what like the cornerstone of good journalism is objectivity right that you you go in and you observe the story and you impartially say how it was you know there was a talk at the ima there were you know 480 people there you know like yeah they're like these these ob objective measurable kind of truths or whatever um, and, and they really hold on to that, this idea that being objective is, is the thing. And I'm like, if you really care about something, anything, you are subjective, right? You, you, you are passionate, you, you have subjectivity. And in journalism, you know, we saw that in, in uh, some, someone like Hunter S. Thompson with the idea of gonzo journalism, which was subjective, you know. Hunter would embed himself into the story and kind of pollute the story and, and manipulate the story from his presence. He wasn't objective and he, he really pioneered that and I always loved that idea. And I always loved that idea of working side by side, like in the trenches with artists and, and being involved and being involved in their stories. And what was interesting is over this time, like people's lives became crazy town, you know? Like Tom Polo, one of the artists in the show, was living in Fairfield, right? And Fairfield is one of the most locked down places in the country. Like they had, um, on, in his neighborhood, they had um, defense force on every corner. You know, people weren't allowed to exercise. They, they were like inspecting shopping bags. It was like crazy conditions. And we're talking about this art show, right? But, but meanwhile, people are living in, you know, I'm living in this weird 5K bubble in Sydney, you know, uh, except my 5K has like 27 beaches and, you know, like it's a pretty nice 5K, but, but I'm stuck to this 5K. And we're talking about art, but I'm, I'm, I'm and I need the art to, to make this show and this show has a deadline and we need to, you know, get it. But really I'm talking about artists and I'm talking to people about their worries every night about life, not, not about art. And so the one thing that I was really adamant about to all the artists was that um, this is going to happen. I keep the faith. This is going to happen. And a lot of these artists had five, 10, 15 projects fall over in this, this two-year period in, in, in the lead-up. But I was like, this is going to happen. I can see it. I can see the opening. I can see it all happening. 
and I was supremely confident. And then on Boxing Day, I'm watching TV and they, they um, start talking about uh, Omicron. I'm like, what? <laughs> what, 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 what? There's, like, it, it's mutated? It's mutated and I've like thought all was lost. And even up until, you know, this show opened, I was so scared. The previous biennial had opened and then closed promptly because of that. And Lee, Lee's, um, uh, Lee Robb's biennial, which was incredible. And I was so sad that it didn't get an audience. You know, the audience that it deserves because it was beautiful. So um, I worked through um, I worked through that with the artists, and um, I, I was really interested in what they wanted to do and what they wanted to say. Um, um, I, I didn't want to be too kind of prescriptive. I wanted to support them, and I wanted to kind of vibe off what they were feeling. And what was interesting, and I talked about this in in the in the speech last night, was that you know a lot of them had become really sort of self-reflective. There was a lot of they were interested in things like family, their family, you know, their, their sort of family histories. Um, They're interested in kind of um, like quite kind of emotive stuff, quite kind of personal stuff. And so we staged the uh, we staged the exhibition, and it was one of the craziest things in my life because the majority of the the time planning is me in my bedroom, like drawing things and doing skypes and. And I'm the type of curator that I like. I love a studio visit and like multiple studio visits, but I, could, I couldn't do it, you know. So I'm doing studio visits but like on Zoom, but it's not the same. And I'm just, I'm literally stuck there. And I can't even like be in the space and like look at the space. I'm having to like remember the space. And I'm doing all this weird kind of math in my head where like kind of like the, you know, the Google Maps with the man, how you drop him or the figure, how you drop it in the map and then you can sort of see around. In my mind, I'm doing that with myself, like trying to look at sight lines and try to look at things. And I'm, I'm drawing stuff on pieces of paper like, you know, this is a 22 metre long wall. Okay, you know, and I draw it. And then I get to South Australia and um, they're building all that stuff. Like they're physically building it. Like the day I arrived, they started like two days before actually building the walls. And this is before any of the artwork comes in and I'm standing there and I'm like, like, did I get this right? Like, you know, like why was I so confident, you know, to do it? And I stand there and I just watch, you know, for a couple of days and it all comes together, this kind of shell. And then the artworks uh, come in. What was interesting to me was um, this coming back to this emotive and this kind of uh, personal thing. So, uh, in the lead up uh, to the biennial, one of the one of the key artists, um, Hussein Valamanesh, who's a, like a stalwart of South Australian art and had just done a, an amazing solo show in um, in Paris, and an incredible guy, really generous guy, who I had fantastic dinners and conversations with. I get this call one day. That, that he had passed away. This is like two months before the show. And it's like, you know, like, like anyone, you know, when someone dies unexpectedly, you know. The weird thing is he had made this kind of complete um, diorama of how he wanted the show. Um, like literally a couple of days before he passed away. So we had this weird kind of um, um, like last will and testimony of this exhibition closer to the show so that happens which sort of rocks my world and then closer to the show um the main benefactor neil balnaves who you know had supported the show was super passionate about the show 
Um, this is a guy, when I first got the gig, one of the first things you've got to do is go see this guy, you know. And I go see him in his office in the city and Rana and Lisa had said, you know, we'll be there for the meeting and it can be a bit full on, but, you know, it's going to be okay. And the idea is that you'll pitch the, the show and, you know, hopefully he'll support the show. Um, but, that, of course, they couldn't come because of lockdowns. So I go to his office in, in uh, Macquarie Street and uh, I'm led into the boardroom and I'm waiting for him and his son to arrive. And they walk in and Mr. Balnaves goes, go. Like, no hello, no, you know, just go. And I go, okay, so this is the show, it's called Free State, blah, blah, blah. I run through all this stuff and I talk all of that kind of history, you know. And Mr. Balnaves, his family were one of those families back in 1836. You know, and I'm kind of thinking this could go really bad. Like I'm sort of being critical. I'm, I am being critical of that time and what was going on. This could be really, really bad. And I talk for 20 minutes and nothing. This guy says nothing. Uh, and then I finish and he looks at me and he goes, what you are talking about is my family. And that is important to me and I'm going to make this happen. And that was it, and he did. A month before the show, he passes away. So we had those two things. We're building the show, you know, it's, it's, it's getting, getting together. We have um, the work of uh, Stanislava Pinchuk, which we'll see in a little while up here on the screen behind me. Uh, this is a work that Stanislava has done where she uh, looks at Homer's The Odyssey um, as a text, and she compares it to texts from Manus Island and uh, Nauru, redacted kind of reports from Manus Island and Nauru. And she removes the source, and you can't tell if the text is from the Odyssey or from the reports. She gets these texts, and she gets a, a, a tombstone engraver in Melbourne to engrave them on these marble uh, kind of columns. And, and part of it's based on her experience uh, uh, being Ukrainian and, and leaving Ukraine, you know, and thinking about that. The day the show opens, uh, Russia invades Ukraine. So suddenly everything, you know, this is a work about refugees and blah, and literally as the show's happening, people are pouring out of the Ukraine. Stanislava goes to do this uh, talk, like a floor talk like this, and this woman who works in the shop comes up to her and is Ukrainian, speaks to her in Ukraine, they weep, and, you know, and they embrace, and Stanislava holds her, you know, this woman she's just met the whole way through the talk, this kind of thing of solidarity. Laith McGregor um, is in the show. He's coming, uh, he's an artist from the Northern Rivers and his work's all about climate change in the, in the Northern Rivers and the devastating effects of climate change. And uh, he calls me with his friend and he's like, um, uh, hey man, I don't know if um, I'm going to make it. And I'm like, you know, because the floodwaters, like they're stuck in the floodwaters, like trying to get to the airport. And I was like, well, you know, you, you be safe. Like it's not important that you make the opening, you know, you just be safe. And he goes, no, no, man, I, I don't know if we're going to make it. Like, I don't know if we're going to survive. We're stuck, you know. And so this is kind of loaded onto it. In the morning of the opening, Neil Armfield, who's the artistic director of the festival, he and I kind of walk through the show. 
and he weeps, you know, he starts crying and he goes, how is it that you made a show that is about this morning? Like it's taken two years and, but it feels like it was made about today. And of course that's just, you know, that's coincidence and that's all of these things kind of conspiring. But it's the first time that I realized that the show was emotive, you know, that it had emotion. Because I don't think you ever intend to be emotive. Like, I don't think you, you, you set out to try and make people kind of emotional. You're like, you just do the show, you want the show to be kind of good. You want it to reach out to people. But, but, but through reaching out to it, I never considered like I'm all about this thing of like reaching out to audiences, but I never considered how they would react. And I had no idea. And that's how they reacted. That's how they reacted. 